0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: The Economist
2: From The Economist in London, this is Money Talks, a weekly programme about news in the worlds of business, finance and economics. I'm Andrew Palmer, the Business Affairs Editor. And on today's show, we're going to be discussing why we should be alarmed by high profits in America and, relatedly, how emerging market billionaires are making their money. With me to discuss these topics is Adrian Waldridge, our former Washington bureau chief and our current writer of the Schumpeter column. Adrian, let's start with America. There's a howl of anger from American voters. Uh, Some of it, we think, connected to free trade, some of it to the shenanigans of the banks. But we argued last week that competition is also a big part of this. What exactly did we lay out? You're absolutely right. You have a howl of anger in the
1: United States. It's coming from the right in the form of Trump, and it's coming from the left in the form of Bernie Sanders, and it has this common characteristic that people feel that the system isn't working for them. On the right, they're more likely to blame immigration. On the left, they're more likely to blame free trade perhaps, although that crosses both left and right, but they feel that the system is rigged and At the same time, you have in the middle, Hillary Clinton, very little sort of positive support. You know, people say, well, she's good, she's competent, she'll be a good president, but there's not a massive amount of enthusiasm for her. So all the energy in American politics is towards those people who argue that the system is broken. And what we did in our last week's cover story was to say that, yes... They're actually right. The system is broken in very, very serious ways, but not quite the way that people think. It's not because of immigration. It's not because of free trade. It's because you have an extreme degree of concentration in capitalism, whereby incumbent firms are sitting fat and happy, making super profits, and there's not enough competition. Competition would be what you would need to lower prices, improve quality. You're not getting that. And if you think of a classic example of this, it's the American Airlines. Everybody used to say about American Airlines, well, the service is terrible. It's an awful experience, but they don't make any money. Now the service is terrible. It's an awful
2: experience and they make huge profits. And that seems to be the nature of America at the moment. America is supposed to be the temple of free enterprise. So why wouldn't we just sort of wait for the market to work its magic? So for airlines, for example, you know, all of these industries where incumbents are making hay, eventually there should be some response where entrants come in and and start to compete away those profits. Absolutely. You have huge
1: profits at the moment. We said that, for example, return on equity in the United States is 40% higher than it is for the same companies operating abroad. These companies are generating huge profits. They're generating cash piles. Uh, they're paying out huge bonuses to their CEOs and various officers. So you would think that people would come in and say, look, that's nice, we want that. It isn't happening. And these companies have been generating big profits for about ten years now. And actually what we're seeing in some ways is still further concentration. We've had wave of mergers and acquisitions, which is making a concentrated system even more concentrated. Why isn't this changing? Some people say it is just about to change. You're seeing a little bit of an uptick in the creation of new companies. You're seeing a little bit of a dip in the profits of some companies at the moment. But I think the signs are very weak that there's a change. It's because these companies have succeeded in building moats around themselves. They've identified areas where they can protect themselves from competition and it's because competition in itself is becoming more difficult because of regulation, government collusion, the price of market entry being raised very high by legal um, restrictions and such things. They're defended partly by business (coughs) considerations that they've built. They've focused on areas where they can build quite defendable business modes but also they're defended by the price of getting into the game which has been going up very dramatically in the United States.
2: Well, if the market can't work and those, those sort of mechanisms are being muted, then there should be an antitrust apparatus to deal with competition issues. That doesn't seem to be working either. Why would that be? It's difficult to launch antitrust
1: cases because the antitrust laws are very tightly defined. So you have to be very obviously breaking laws or very obviously restricting trade. There's not a predisposition that competition is in itself a good thing that you ought to be creating. But also there's been a long-term sort of intellectual legacy of the Chicago School. The Chicago School basically argued that concentration in itself is not something we ought to be worried about. As long as there's competition, concentration doesn't matter. And it's looking increasingly as though the Chicago School was wrong and concentration is in itself something that we we ought to be worried about. Now, again, there are some good things that are being done. Obama has talked quite a lot recently about the license rage, about the amount of licenses that you need to have to get into various occupations. The White House has really emphasized this, but they haven't really emphasized the virtues of
2: just free market competition. But even if we saw big policymakers acting in a concerted way to address this problem, it's not clear that it would have a result that worked fast enough to affect the election in November. You're absolutely right. There's nothing that really can be done by policymakers
1: in Washington to change the dynamics of companies up until then. The big, question is how we address this discontent in the longer term. That's the thing hanging over American politics, I think, for the next decade or even longer. Will we have a response that takes the shape of more protectionism, more anti-immigration sentiments, or will we have a response that takes the form of more emphasis on free trade, competition, the merits of capitalism? And the great unfortunate thing about America is there's no real champion of this position at the moment. On The Republican Party is drifting more and more to xenophobia and more and more to sort of, Tub thumping populism, and the Democratic Party is very rooted in big trade unions, big vested interests. There's no sort of pro capitalist person who says that what you really need to do is have more competition. And I'm very worried that we could actually be seeing much more concentration in the next decade rather than less concentration. If you look at Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley was something that we all thought of in the 1990s as a place where you had lots and lots of startups, lots of competition, it was capitalism at its very best. Now it's dominated by a smaller and smaller Group of companies. There are startups, of course, but very rapidly they're either bought up by these big companies or they go out of
2: business. So, if in last week's issue we upended the idea of America as a home of uh, competition and free market enterprise, this week you're taking on another piece of conventional wisdom, which is the idea that emerging markets is a place where people make money mainly out of crony capitalism. And you're looking in particular at a new book. There's a very good book by a woman called Caroline Freund, of
1: the Peterson Institute in Washington DC. And what she's done is to look. At the Forbes list of billionaires from 2014 and study them, torture the data as it were, and find out what we know about these billionaires. And what she's found is that the proportion of billionaires in the emerging world who are self made has gone up quite significantly. It's gone up from about 56% to about 79%, whereas at the same time, the proportion of billionaires in the rich world who are self-made has stayed roughly the same. So what that gives you a sense of is that there's a lot of dynamism in this list of billionaires in the emerging world, which you haven't got in the rich world. Now, just being self-made isn't in itself a sign of a good thing. You can be self-made because you happen to form a friendship with an oligarch, with a dictator, that goes on. But what she has discovered is that a significant portion of these self-made billionaires are self-made because they founded or because they run global companies which are competing globally. And the number of billionaires who are company founders or company runners has gone from about 12% of emerging market billionaires to about 35% of emerging market billionaires. So a big increase in this category of people who have made their money as Schumpeterian entrepreneurs. In the rich world, it's static. In the emerging world, a new category of people is emerging. That number of billionaires presumably is, is under threat. Clearly, something has changed since 2014. We've had an emerging market slowdown, virtually no growth in Brazil. Uh, Much slower growth in China, India continuing to grow, but a very mixed picture there. First of all, I don't think that discredits the study in the sense that I think she's obviously discovered something very important that happened between 2000 and 2014, which is the creation of a category of billionaires who've made new money, Schumpeterian value creators. But secondly, we don't know this. This is speculation. But secondly, I would think that the slowdown may well have affected old money or frontier-related money or property-related money much more than it's affected the money of people who've created globally competitive firms. These firms operate in global markets. They're quite often in fairly dynamic sectors of the economy. They're much less likely to have been entirely captured by the emerging market slowdown. We may even see... Nobody's studied the data yet. We
2: may have even seen a higher proportion of self-made billionaires than we've seen before. In a way, this is an echo of the earlier discussion about America – if people in emerging markets are making their money in a meritocratic way, does that draw the sting of the inequality debate in the sense that people are much more willing to put up with the sight of tycoons getting ever richer?
1: Basically what we see in emerging markets and again with the proviso that there's been a slowdown in recent years is that people are much less hostile to the rich than they are in the rich world. They see an expanding pie and they see the rich people, particularly the sort of entrepreneurs who are creating companies, as making the world richer for everybody. So they're not so hostile. So if you look at lists of admired people, the most admired people in the emerging world, they tend to be people like Bill Gates, people who have created companies or local business areas. In the rich world, they don't tend to be those people. The people are much more hostile to billionaires. In the emerging world, people tend to think that what matters is opportunity, not equality. Here, people tend to be much more worried about equality. When I say here, I mean the the richer world. And I think there's a good truth in that. There's a reason for that, because what you see in the emerging world is that a growing number of people are getting rich by creating new wealth. They're creating big global companies that are producing new products or, or new processes of doing things. Here, we see that in Silicon Valley, but we don't see it enough right across the economy.
2: We see these very stable, oligopolistic companies that have many of the characteristics of frontiers. The startups and the self-made tycoons of today will be the incumbents who are seeking to protect themselves tomorrow. So we may just see this unfold in emerging markets as we have in the West.
1: Absolutely. One of the things that's striking is how simple these new wealth creators in the emerging markets are and these new companies that are being created in the emerging markets are to what happened in the United States in the late 19th century, Japan after the Second World War, South Korea in the 1950s and 60s, whereby there are people who are becoming very rich by creating new companies like the Rockefellers and like the Carnegie's and those people very rapidly become incumbents. And so what we could see in the future, two very different things. We could see this as a part of a wave of value creation, whereby you get lots of new companies coming along, lots of new wealth creators, lots of new startups, and expanding wealth for everybody. Or you could see these oligarchs becoming more entrenched, forming bigger relationships with the governments, bigger relationships with old wealth. So just adding a little bit to the new wealth, but just becoming a little bit bigger ruling class, but the same
2: ruling class. So these people could become rontiers and part of this rontier establishment very quickly. Adrian, thank you very much. That's all for this week. Don't forget, if you want to be part of the conversation, you can tweet us at econbizfin and at econeconomics. And you can find our column on emerging market billionaires in the upcoming print issue of The Economist and on our website at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.
1: The Economist.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer.